please remain standing for the gospel lesson, which begins in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Hear the gospel of the Lord. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our text is commonly called the parable of the prodigal son. And that's the title I use in the bulletin. But it's not correct on at least two fronts. First, there are two sons involved in the parable and not simply the prodigal. And both sons are critical to the story. And secondly, while the sons are key figures in the text, the central actor in the text is their extraordinary father. A better title would be something like The Magnificent Father and His Two Lost Sons. 
Now, before we get to the actual parable, it's important to see the context. In verse 1 of this chapter, Luke 15, we're told that tax collectors and sinners uh, drew near to Jesus to hear him. And this causes the scribes and the Pharisees to complain again that Jesus welcomes sinners as our opening hymn sung, and he eats with them. It's not enough that he receives them, but he has meals with them. And so in response to this complaint, Jesus tells two short parables right before this one. And the three parables together form a kind of trilogy. And so I want to say just a couple words about the, the two short parables right before this one. The first is the, is the parable of the lost sheep, about the shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep and seeks out the one that's lost, and finding it brings it home. And then with great joy, he calls for a celebration, which he says mirrors the joy in heaven over one repentant sinner. There's more joy, Jesus says there, over this than over 99 persons who need no repentance. It's a curious phrase from the Lord. There is some evidence that the rabbis of this time felt that some people did not break the law. And thus they didn't sin, and thus they needed no repentance. And so when Jesus makes this remark about the 99 who need no repentance, it sort of sounds like he's endorsing this rabbinic view. We'll return to that later. Uh, and then the same themes are struck in another short parable of a lost coin. A woman lights a lamp, searches until she finds a lost coin, and she also calls for a feast. So in both of these parables, the, the shepherd and the woman, they seek. And in their own diligence, in their own costly way, they find. Then they call for a celebration. And in both of these parables, the others, the 99 sheep and the nine coins that aren't lost, they sort of remain there in the background. So that brings us to the third parable uh, which Jesus introduces in verse 11. Now remember, it's told to the scribes and the Pharisees. We'll make four points here. The departure, the repentance, the reunion, and the second son. The departure, the repentance, the reunion, and the second son. So the departure, verse 12, when the younger son says, Father, give me my share of the estate, something to that effect in, in various translations, uh, he is insulting his father. He is saying, give me what is mine as if you were already dead. It's a murderous request, actually. And from the father's point of view, it's a heartbreaking demand that would surely cause great internal suffering. His son is saying, I want my inheritance as if you were dead. And here the, the greatness of the father begins to emerge because the father in the parable acts completely against the grain of what a Middle Eastern father would do in the face of such a wicked request from a child. The text simply says that the father divided up his property. And the word for property there is very 
conveys the notion essentially of the father's life. The land is his life in this culture. He belongs to the land. In a sense, this is an act of the father tearing his life apart for the son at the outset of the parable. Notice the father's behavior. No lectures for the son. No discipline, just a suffering father granting the son the substance of his house and freedom from his house, which the son has tragically come to desire. The father bears the agony in silence. And not long after that, the text tells us, that little not long after that indicates the recklessness, the haste of the son. He gathers all that he had, which meant he immediately sold his inheritance and converted it to cash. Give me my inheritance. And then not long after that, he gathers up all he has and he heads off into a distant country, which is thus a Gentile country. And he squanders his wealth in what the, well, the NIV here said wild living, but that's a, a bit prejudicial. The text really just means reckless or, or prodigal living. The idea here is primarily that he was wasteful. Uh, immorality is, may be and probably is implied, but it's not where the accent is. The accent is on the wasteful extravagance of the son. So he's got a lot of money, and he's heading out for the bright lights. But plans go awry. After he'd spent all the money, there was a famine in the land. He becomes poor and destitute. He gets a job from a citizen in that country and he ends up feeding pigs. This is an important little detail because pigs are unclean animals. And Jesus is using this as an image of the defilement of sin. If you're a Jew, feeding pigs is as low an occupation as you can get. It doesn't get worse than that. Now, to this point, Jesus' hearers would probably be in agreement with him. They would, they would say, well, if sinners are like this son, he disrespects his father, he disgraces his community, he lives among the Gentiles, he defiles himself with pigs. Maybe this Jesus and we, scribes and Pharisees, have basically the same point of view on this question of sin. So at this point in the story, the, the son is so hungry, he'd be happy to eat what the pigs eat. But the text tells us no one gives him anything, and he's actually in real danger of starvation. And so he has, in verse 17, a moment of enlightenment. The text says he came to his senses. Right, reality has a way of doing that. Um, but we should be suspicious of his motives at this point. At this point, he comes to his senses only as a last resort, something that needs to be embraced to avoid starvation. And he realizes, he's thinking to himself, my father's hired servants have enough to eat, and I'm perishing out here. So his chief concern seems to be, at the beginning at least, with his stomach. And that brings us to the second point. So that's his departure. The second point is repentance. He determines to rise and return to his father. He says to himself, I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. So, you know, if there's repentance here, 
It's very mixed in its character. He knows what he's done. He knows he needs food. And he also kind of knows he's going to need to sort of work his father. So he is essentially preparing the speech, right, in his own mind. In verse 19, he rehearses what he's going to say, right? Not what he says, what he's going to say. He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. This is very important. He's asking to be a hired man. Not, Not a son and not a slave. An employee. He expects to work and get paid so that he can eat and maybe pay his father back. He realizes he's renounced his sonship, but he doesn't appear even now to to really care about having it back. He won't even ask to live in the house. He says, just let me live where the hired help lives. So we should be suspicious about the repentance of the prodigal at this point. He's just saying, look, my father's house is a better employment situation than the one I was in. Repentance is not something we do to get halfway back to the house of the Father. Repentance happens after we have been found by God. That's the point of the first two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin. Repentance happens after God has found us. So the third point is the reunion. Verse 20. He's a long way off, the text says, and the Father saw him. This is remarkable because it tells us what the Father's been doing the whole time. He's been looking. And he's been longing and yearning and suffering across the long span of time for his son's return. When the son was a long way off, the Father saw him. And the text says he was filled with compassion for him. And so you have here an insulted despised father, and he's not waiting for this son with a lecture. Right? There's no, see, I told you so. I told you that's how it would go if you did this. There's no spirit of reproach in the father. The father doesn't even have the attitude that all fathers of my generation had, which is, let's wait and see if he learned anything. You know? The father doesn't even care that the son's motives are mixed. Doesn't care. And so the text tells us against all the the customs of oriental dignity for older men, the father ran to meet his son. He saw him from afar off. He felt compassion and then he runs. One one scholar said the best title for this parable would be the parable of the running father. The father has now twice displayed this costly, self-emptying, even humiliating love. First in granting his son freedom and, and tearing his very life apart to give him what he wanted, and now by humiliating himself in public by running. In this culture, Men did not do this, especially elderly men. You would have to pull up your long robe 
You'd have something like this on. You'd pull it up to run, and that would expose his legs, and that was considered undignified for a man in this culture. This is a father who's lost all self-consciousness about his dignity and about what's proper for him. So he runs. And what this is is an image of the patient God of Israel who runs after his defiled sheep. Right? Tax collectors. God runs after tax collectors. He runs after prostitutes. He does this in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God the Father running after you. Running after those who've run away from the Father's house. And so in a sense, he's telling the audience here, I am the self-emptying, long-suffering love of the God of Israel, and I'm willing to be humiliated in public. I'm willing to do whatever it takes for the lost sheep of the house of Israel to be restored, whom you, by the way, you scribes and Pharisees, whom you despise. These are the ones I'm coming for. And in me, my, the Father is running after these ones who are far off from the kingdom. When the Father meets the Son, He throws His arms around Him. He kisses Him. So the Son may be prodigal, but the Father's compassion is even more so. And so this is what's prodigal here in the parable is this extravagant love of the Father. It obliterates your sins. They're not even brought up again. The son finally makes his confession in verse 21 in response to this really shocking running and embrace of the Father. And here we have true repentance. He repeats his earlier words about sinning against heaven but notice what he doesn't do in verse 21. He doesn't ask for a paying job as a hired servant. Now, he's not thinking, I'll start from the bottom and work my way back up. How could he think that? The father's greeting shattered any previous half-baked repentance. At this point, at this point only, the son is found by God. So he makes something of a confession. What's the father's response to the son's confession in the text? Here's his response. He doesn't even address it. You know, you, you, ever, you ever try and teach your children how to repent? You're sort of looking for them to say some magic words to indicate that maybe they have some sense of the gravity of what they've done. This father's not looking for any magic words. None. He's not even looking for an explanation, much less any kind of groveling. The son's acceptance of his embrace is enough. It's magnificent. And so the father's response, this is the father's response to the son's confession. You can see it beginning in verse 22. He says it to his servants. He doesn't say anything to the son. He turns to the servants and says, let's have a party. Let, let's celebrate that's what the doctrine of free justification, free forgiveness of sins calls for. It's the let's have a party doctrine, the doctrine of celebration. And you know the rest of the story well. Put the best robe on him, which is a sign of dignity, a covering for glory. 
Right? The father completely ignores the prodigal's declaration that he's unworthy to be his son. He will have none of that. He does not receive the son back on probation, which is how we receive repentant people back generally. Yeah, well, accept your repentance. But listen, if this happens again, we're going to have to put some tougher sanctions in place. There's none of that here. There's no probation. The father says put a ring on his finger, which is a sign not only of sonship, but of authority in the house. Put sandals on his feet. He's not going to be a barefoot servant, hired or otherwise. He is a son. It doesn't matter that he says, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. When the father forgives you, you're a son or a daughter. And you have all the glory and all the privileges and the authority of the house. And it doesn't matter what you did yesterday. So he says, kill the fatted calf and calls for the celebration. Because the son who was dead is now alive. The text says the son who was lost is now found. And so in verse 24, the, the, they begin the celebration. And now we come to the older son. Now, just as the prodigal is an image of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, this is often missed in the reading of this parable because we generally go from, right from the reading of this parable to our own application. To, to, you know, are we a prodigal or are we an older son? The, the prodigal is about the lost sheep of the house of Israel who Jesus eats with and lavishes his love on. But the older son, he represents the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious authorities. And so in verse 25, he's in the field. Where else would he be? He has a great work ethic. He's a dutiful son. He does his chores. He reads the Torah every day. And he draws near to the house and he hears this ruckus inside the house. Music and dancing, verse 25 says. Music and dancing. You just had to be near the house to know what's happening. You didn't have to go in. That's how loud it was. And so the older son calls for a servant and asks what's, asks what's going on. And the servant says, your brother's come and your father's killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And so what's the brother's response? You can see it in verse 28. He was angry and he refused to go in. And by this, by the way, he now again publicly disgraces his father. This is the response of the religious establishment to the promiscuous love of Jesus to the lost sheep of Israel. Peevish, narrow, angry self-righteousness. I mean, it's astonishing. And you see the heart of the great father again, yet again, the latter half of verse 28. He leaves the party. The text says he went outside and pleaded with him. Now again, the normal Middle Eastern response here for a father with this kind of estate and authority is to have this son outside locked up and punished after the party. Put him in his room. I'll deal with him later. And the father's going out to plead with him. This means that the same mercy, 
The same love that is lavished on tax collectors and sinners is being lavished on the Pharisees and the scribes. That the God of Israel is pleading with them to join the long-foretold feast that has arrived in Jesus Christ. This is the third demonstration of the Father's costly love in the parable. So the Father's outside, pleading in the posture of a supplicant to this son. And the older son's answer begins in verse 29, and his answer reeks. He starts off with, look, look. All these years I've been slaving for you. He's an outwardly good son, but he's keeping score. He's keeping score. There's no mention of the father's gifts. Not to mention the disrespectful tone of the look. No mention of the benefits of the father's house. I have been serving you. And then he goes on to say, I've never, never, he says, disobeyed your orders. I keep the law. I know the rules. Now, all religious traditions are fraught with this danger, and we do well to recognize it. You have devout and dedicated people, people who generally keep the commandments, but it turns out that they can become so lawless in their own pride and self-sufficiency within the apparent constraints of the law that they're as blind or blinder to their own unrighteousness as blatant, open, public sinners and deniers of the gospel. That's a tragic dynamic, but to, to recognize that it doesn't happen and frequently or to think that the, somehow this dynamic is restricted to the scribes and Pharisees? Devout and dedicated law keepers can become so lawless within the constraints of the law. And so the son, ironically, in an act of public wickedness, is confidently protesting his own righteousness. I keep the laws. I didn't disobey you. I've served you all these years. That's how these sorts of people are. They can't even see that their own declarations of righteousness are wicked. The son is in a terrible place, this older son. And here we see the connection to the idea that I mentioned earlier from the first parable that maybe the 99 Sheep didn't need any repentance. Jesus, Jesus is saying here, look, it's not just the one sheep or the one coin, and it's certainly not just the one son that is lost. Both sons are lost, which is another reason why the traditional title for the parable is a little deceiving. Not only are both sons lost, if anything, the elder son's condition is much more uh, tragic and dire. The older son continues in verse uh, 29, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Forget the fattened calf. But you never even took me to McDonald's. I never got even a goat and this guy's getting a five-course dinner. 
I would like a little party with my friends too. And, and let me tell you, Father, I can assure you, my friends are not like his friends. My friends are good, solid citizens. My friends go to church on Wednesday night. And my friends have no tattoos or piercings. His friends are crazy. I would like a party with my friends, but I never got one. And as if this would not be bad enough, he continues in verse 30. But when this son of yours comes home, notice the language again. Not my brother, but this son of yours. Let me tell you something about this older son. He's a despicable human being. But he never breaks any commandments publicly. I mean, he, he's, he's a good, dutiful person. No one would think anything bad of him. Civically, he's a great neighbor, but he's a despicable human being. This son of yours? The mean-spiritedness here is much worse than anything the prodigal had been doing. He disowns his brother, this son of yours, this one who he says squandered your property with prostitutes, which is something he couldn't know. And it's not necessarily implied in the prodigal's recklessness. It's another case of assuming the absolute worst about another person. It's clear that he wants his brother disinherited. Tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom long before this nice, clean, law-abiding Christian boy does. And that's the crucial focus of the Lord here. The older son is lost. And he continues this uh, horrific discussion with his father. As soon as, as soon as the son shows up without probation, you know, without penalty, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now, of course, all of us naturally feel the force of this older son's complaint, I think. We're, I think because we're inclined to sin like him. It seems like an injustice has been committed. And from a certain vantage point, sure. From the vantage point of the law, one could not blame this older son, but he is wrong, and he's dead wrong. Look at the great father's reply in verse 31. My son, he starts. Again, he doesn't correct the rashness. He doesn't seek to win the argument. He affirms this self-righteous child as his son. My son, son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. You are not going to lose your inheritance. Nothing I'm doing here threatens you. My heart is fully turned to you. You have all the riches of my house at your disposal. And finally, he tells him in verse 32, we had to, we had to make Mary and be glad. We had to, he says, because Notice what the father says in verse 32. Because this brother of yours, he reverses this. Not your brother, he says, not my son. This brother of yours. Right? The older son said, this son of yours. And the father says, my son, this brother of yours was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. And so we had to celebrate. And so Jesus is asking against the foil of the older brother. What he's saying is, why can't the religious leaders 
see what God is doing and rejoice that sinners are being called into the kingdom. And so even at this late hour, the Pharisees are being handled with great care by the Father in tenderness and love. The Pharisees themselves are being called into the dancing and the singing and the eating at the Lord's table with the scattered ones. And the parable ends in this open-ended manner. We do, not, we do not know if the older son ever comes in. But we do know that the religious authorities continue to resist Jesus and that Jerusalem was destroyed tragically in 70 A.D. You know, interestingly, Muslim scholars in, in the Middle Ages were quite fond of this parable. Um, and one of the reasons they were fond of it, it's a great story on any, on any reading, but one of the reasons they liked it is they felt that it could show that one could get their way back to God without an incarnation and without a cross. After all, they, they reasoned there's no incarnation or cross in the parable. But this is a grievous mistake. Uh, Jesus is saying by the parable, I am the self-emptying, costly love of this Father in human flesh. My ministry is the Father running into the far country. Right? The great uh, Swiss theologian Karl Barth used to use that uh, language about this parable. He used to say, Jesus is the Father running into the far country. I'm the Father, Jesus is saying. In, I am one with the Father. I am the Father's voice pleading with you Pharisees out in the courtyard. And so whether you're a prodigal or an older son or as probably the case with most of us, a little bit of both, uh, this text is for you. It's a magnificent gospel text. It says, look, you have to forsake the licentiousness, you know, the, the recklessness, you know, the, the, the quest for self-discovery that the younger son was on. You have to forsake it. But we must also forsake the moralistic self-righteousness of the older son and instead embrace the gospel. And so, once we embrace that gospel, the celebration begins because the broken-hearted, compassionate father has found us. He's found us either in the far country or he's found us standing in the courtyard of his own house. And he's found us in Jesus Christ. Amen.